Welcome to another public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Duncan Morrow, Chief Executive of the Northern Ireland Community Relations Council, talks about the role of faith in the conflict in Northern Ireland. Well, good evening everyone and welcome here to the Swindon Lecture in association of, with the University of Bath in Swindon and Swindon Churches Together. My name is Rosemary Power from Swindon Churches Together and I'm a member of the Iona community. It's great pleasure to have, all the way from Belfast, Dr. Duncan Morrow, Chief Executive Officer of the Northern Ireland Community Relations Council, which is the body with primary responsibility for funding and development of inter-community relations, practice and policy in Northern Ireland. And it has taken a leading role in recent years to underpin the dialogue on a shared future to improved community relations. Duncan has been involved for many years in community activities in Northern Ireland. As a lecturer at the University of Ulster, has worked on the issues of peace studies, conflict, and religion and violence, and has written numerous books on the subject. And in 1998 was appointed as Northern Ireland Sentence Review Commissioner, the body responsible for the early release of paramilitary prisoners as agreed under the Northern Ireland Agreement. Welcome tonight, Duncan, to speak on Faith in Conflict, Reflections from Northern Ireland. Good evening. What a good crowd for a Valentine's Day. I was once young love's dream as well. <laughs> I'm not sure if this is what you wanted to be taken out to on a Valentine's Day, but I hope that I'll uh, do the business. Um, thank you, Rosemary. Thank you for inviting me. Um, it's always uh, a, an opportunity to get, when you're asked to give a talk to actually rethink some of the things you thought before. So the title of Reflections is probably useful because... I'm always reminded when I have to talk in this kind of way in front of an audience of what Chu and Lai, the <clears throat> one of the Prime Ministers of China, I think the one before last, or the one before, before last, said when uh, asked about what he thought the main consequences of the French Revolution were, and he said, too early to tell. <laughs> so uh, as somebody in the middle of the process, the same as yourselves, you have to take these things as somewhat provisional if in that context, if in the context of Northern Ireland that's not a dangerous thing to be. But anyway, uh, I suppose today I want to just really introduce a topic. And uh, in speaking to Rosemary earlier, she suggested that previous lecturers have used this space in various different ways, some of them singing. I won't be singing tonight, you'll be glad to hear. But uh, I think... I will probably try to talk a little bit about aspects of this topic because it's not a topic which even in an hour and a half we can exhaust, as you might have gathered from watching your media over the last 40 years. But nevertheless, uh, it's something where it might be useful to take uh, opportunities to ask questions back and forward at at various points in the middle of it. So rather than keep you sitting for the full length of time and and stop, what I'll try to do is I'll try to break it up a little bit into two or three portions. I want to, uh, though, reflect first of all on the whole topic of what Northern Ireland has taught me, partly in my job previously as a lecturer in politics in the university and partly now in my work in the Community Relations Council. The Community Relations Council 
to give, it a, give you a sense of it, was a body established out of government but by government, which says a lot, actually, because what, in effect, uh, had to happen there was the government in the 1990s was taking a, a leap, trying to say, we actually have to get some dialogue going around some difficult topics, which are very difficult to, for people to engage with. But because the government or the state or whatever word you want to use to describe that was itself seen as part of the conflict and certainly was an aspect over which there was absolutely no consensus, um, they needed to establish it outside of government. So we were establishing an independent body with a certain degree of financial resource to try to actually stimulate and encourage inter-community activity on the ground. And from that, both to build practice in what was effectively, if not a desert, at least a very barren area of work because conflict had taken its toll on the willingness of people to engage, particularly on more controversial issues. And secondly, uh, <coughs> from that, to try to build some ideas about how um, policy might develop. I just want to say two things before I, I move on on that topic. Many people think... Um, that good relationships are primarily determined by harmony. <coughs> and for many people in the community relations world, and I use that word as our word for it, the intercommunity contact word, uh, the measure of our success was the niceness of the experience, how harmonic it was, a kind of new age hum around us all. Well, I have to say that in a way... That was the biggest diversion from our task that we ever had. Because the easiest way to generate harmony was actually not to talk about anything. Avoidance was massively the easiest way for us to get through the day and all have a nice cup of tea. And actually, it was critically important that we engaged with those areas which were most difficult for us to, to discuss. And so if I want to put a kind of frame on today's conversation, it's really just to say to you, I think Northern Ireland has come an awful long way, but it's not measured by the surface harmony on the television. It's measured by the amount of difficult topics which can now be dealt with in a framework which is one of mutual recognition, one of people actually sitting, talking and working with one another, rather than taking it outside the room and exercising it through megaphones or through weapons or through violence. And the critical task in a society which doesn't have a consensus, as we never have had, is to find the spaces and mechanisms by which serious conversations can be had and from there change can be developed. So if the me one of the, obviously that is all towards some wider, greater goal of our capacity to live together. How do we live together is really the, the not-too-academic question. How do we live together with all of these differences and all of these different experiences interfering with our capacity to see and meet each other as human beings? That's the question. But the answer, if that is the outcome, that we can now live better together than we could before, is not going to be one in which conflict in human life, in this life, I suppose, is going to be abolished. It's going to be one in which we try to find ways in which those conflicts which exist can be named. People who have difficult things to say can say them that those things are taken into some kind of framework whereby action is taken as a result, and over time people begin to have trust in that as the basis on which they live together. And so I want to say to you that the first point I'm saying to you is, I suppose, good relations looks like 
facing conflict head on. There was no way and is no way for us to deal with things like how you do policing. How are we going to recover from paramilitary and terrorist activity? How are we going to share government against a backdrop where people were divergently opposite without having conflicts? The question is where and how and on what are the rules? Okay? So that's my first overarching point is part of our task now is not to assume we know people but to actually create spaces and make spaces where we listen to different voices and try to make sense of some of them and try to meet. The second thing I want to say, I suppose, by way of introduction to this topic is one of the things teaching politics, <clears throat> and I'm going to use this, I was going to use technology, but I decided that uh, I would take a risk and go on the old whiteboard, <clears throat> talk and talk. Um, the uh, theory when I went into education was that the teacher stood at the front and the pupils or students, as it was in my case, sat and absorbed the great wisdom of the teacher. <coughs> well, I don't know how many of you have been in higher education recently. I don't know how many of you teach politics. And I don't know how many of you teach history and politics in a place where it results in death. <laughs> but my experience was nothing like this. Sure enough, I stood at the front. <laughs> the difference was that the audience all believed <coughs> that they knew at least as much about this topic as I did. And so their primary question was not, oh, great teacher, teach us. It was, right, who's this? In Irish, <laughs> in Irish parlance, who's your man? which effectively was not the question of whether my great pearls would transform and convert them, but whether I would use whatever vestige of authority was still in that role to confirm what they already came into the classroom with. <coughs> and the presupposition was that if I told them something they didn't like, it wasn't that they had to change, it was that I was wrong. And part of that... Uh, it says, suggests you that we have to be very clear, actually, that once conflict reaches a certain point, once uh, authority is gone, you cannot actually assume it. <laughs> and you don't get it back just by standing at the front. And the question about teaching and learning in that, that context was, how do we learn again together? How do we begin to hear each other? And first of all, that meant not going away from facts at all. Eventually, it means coming back to an agreed basis in which we can move forward. But taking seriously what's interfering with us actually learning from, each, from and with each other and acknowledging the context. So I suppose I want to say to you two things. First of all, authority in Northern Ireland is deeply contested, so be on your guard. <laughs> it's up to you, exactly as it was for them. Number two, what I also learned was not that I necessarily um, had to, um, uh, I'm not suggesting we move away from, a, from a, a solidity here, but that the points where conflict emerged, where people felt resistance, where people felt some sense of, I don't agree with that, or there's something about that which instinctively is wrong for me, are very often the points of greatest learning. And the critical challenge is, can we create enough safety to begin, not necessarily to contest the facts, although that may eventually become the question, 
but certainly to try to work through what is going on. What, something is at stake here. Something is at stake here. And for me personally, it became the critical learning point in terms of trying to describe and analyze what was going on in the society I lived in. And therefore, I suppose, most importantly, uh, the critical issue is not to create some false consensus, but nevertheless to acknowledge that, uh, first of all, authority can only be won back eventually because it's given back. Second of all, uh, that we have to take seriously these issues of difference and find ways to engage with them as learning experiences rather than as points of conflict. Although the points of conflict, they are, but they're also learning experiences. And thirdly, that in many ways, especially in social life, uh, learning now is an interactive activity, not just an action activity in which one is in the front. And maybe finally, one of the great advantages of being a teacher, I suppose, was that in the end I sat the exam. I set the exam. <laughs> so it was still the odd little thing I could do for them. <clears throat> but uh, in this context, uh, the, the class in many ways is learning as much about the relationships to facts as to facts, that relationships matter as much as the objects. That people are holding on to things not simply because they're stupid, but because it matters to them. And because something matters to them. In fact, you know, in many ways, it wasn't a question of uh, wanting more pieces of information. It was, and even coming into the room, there was no necessary chance I may have known more, I've read more. It was a sense of the shape of history, about who was to blame, about what was at fault, about who had to change, about where conflict came from, and about uh, where responsibility lay. And at that point, people came in with a very sure sense of where that came from. The last thing I want to say to you is this, is uh, universities, in my experience, are less, maybe more, this isn't a fair, uh, this is maybe not a fair caricature. But education, in many ways, teaches us rightly to apply reason, this great thing, reason. And the Americans were very lucky they could see things, self-evident, reasonable. And I am not here to undermine it because I think getting to the point where we subject ourselves to the discipline of evidence and proof is extremely important and creates for the university a framework within which we can all think and talk. And nevertheless, it's not easily won, let me tell you. Because uh, the notion is, uh, because eventually, actually, for it to succeed, we have to apply it also to ourselves. We have to acknowledge that each of us looks at the world through the prism of being a human being in the middle of it. And that the great uh, intellectual uh, dream of being able to stand outside it and observe objects as if we don't belong to them becomes, in some senses, more and more difficult unless we are prepared also to see ourselves as part of it. And I suppose when we're talking about faith and politics, the core questions are, this isn't just about out there. <laughs> this is also about me. This is about my reality. Um, politics in Northern Ireland was not about something, and never has been in my experience, about something outside of us who are looking at it. <coughs> it was about this word, 
that was used was identity. And the word identity is etymologically the same as the word identical. <laughs> In other words, it's the same as me. And whereas rationality had the great uh, benefit of being able to stand outside, measure something, see the thing as separate from yourself, and uh, had a certain calm around it. Discussions of things with which I am identical with me weren't just rational. They were profoundly emotional. They were profoundly uh, existential, if you like. They were about who I was. And therefore, things were at stake because any change in the rational discovery wasn't just a change in something out there. It was a change in the room with me and between me and different people. And therefore, actually, I suppose I'm saying to you is unless education develops some kind of uh, emotional intelligence, a capacity to deal with all this interference, no learning happens because everything's absorbed in the great reaction that's going on. Everything's absorbed in that. So why am I telling you that? I'm telling you for two reasons. First of all, because I'm asking you to engage in a journey which is maybe about Northern Ireland and maybe about other places. A bit, anyway. It's our story. It's what we experienced over the last while. And in some sense, it's about a specific place. And it's also about human beings caught up in certain circumstances in which this is about how we react when these things happen to us. And our faith institutions, in many ways, come out of this as human institutions with the question for those of us who are believers as to, well, what was, in, what was it in that which was important to us? What was it in, our, in, that, in that believing which, in some sense, contributed to that? But it's a question for everybody because nobody went through the, this context without a challenge to themselves, not just to their knowing. Okay? And, this, and I suppose I'm saying to you as well, I think as we as societies lose less and less certainty about the communities that we've come from as they become more and more global, the capacity to jump between different people's experience, not to assume it, not to be able to take for granted the basic presumptions which people are coming from, the capacity to learn across or to actually ask questions before we assume is going to become more rather than less important as we go forward in finding a way here. So I want to suggest to you actually that there are things in this experience which are becoming important for everybody. Okay? I'll come back to that in a second. The three uh, parts I wanted to uh, take, and I will look at my watch because I've already taken 20 minutes saying nothing, um, I wanted to look at were, in a sense, to look at this a little bit historically from my angle, to look at it in terms of the political impact on people, and then maybe at the end, if we have time, do a little bit, very, very unprofessionally, because I'm not at all uh, schooled in it, in some uh, theological reflections at the end of it, maybe which you can uh, conclude today. I suppose I uh, the the question of of faith and politics so, uh, uh, presumes a certain understanding of what you mean by faith. 
and I just need to put mine on the line. Mine is that this is a moving organic reality in which uh, the tradition as received is tested against the reality that we have and that the struggle of all people who are interested in this as an ex is to make sense of it in that light. And so it is inevitably not about applying fixed realities. It is about taking the, the context that we're living in as actually a possibility of learning, of revelation, of finding something out that we didn't know before. And that that actually is what faith is about, not about coming into some fixed set of tablets and stone, but using the knowledge of one generation and its learning in some kind of consideration against the challenges that we have now. So it is Herman Melville, the, writing of, the writer of Moby Dick, said, the world is a ship and the pulpit is the prow. That's how I understand what the task of wrestling faith in the real world is actually about. An invitation to wrestle with a lived reality. So, I want to talk a little bit about the inherited history of Northern Ireland and about its particularity. Why did we have what we had? I suppose the truth is that what we had was an unusual set of circumstances which tied politics to religion in an unusually profound way. And that, in many ways, has left us with our problem. Because Northern Ireland is not poor <laughs> by global standards. Northern Ireland is not ill-educated by global standards. Northern Ireland has not got a history of feudal ownership like Russia or parts of uh, Asia and Africa today. Everybody was part of the capitalist economy very early. We all speak English. And as far as anybody has an advantage in the global economy, the English speakers have it. We have all the pluses. And yet in many ways we ended up tied into a knot which uh, has obsessed us for a long time and which maybe even only now is beginning to loosen a little bit and unravel a little bit. And maybe what it teaches us is it's not the absolutes in this world that tend to make the difference. It's the relationships. It's the relativities. It's not what I have. It's what I have compared to them. <laughs> and so in the end of the day, no matter how much we have, the question of compared to them <laughs> will restate itself. And that the fundamental question is how we apply all of these social goods, all of these objects, all of these things in relationship to each other. And Northern Ireland certainly suggests that it's not just a question of throwing money at the question. It's a question of resolving something that's at the bottom of this, which is something to do with a broken relationship. And maybe the profound tying of religion and politics, the reason why it was such a deep tie, was that it was so associated with violence. It was so associated with a trauma and a scar which actually have proved extremely difficult to overcome. Okay, I want to uh, look a little bit at uh, the, the settlement that created Northern Ireland just practically, and I'll take about five minutes on this just so you have some sense of it. Uh, this is these islands, there's Wales. 
There you go. The, um, the, the historical problem, I suppose, for us was that, the, when, that our settlement um, was created, what Northern Ireland, what became Northern Ireland, really emerged at the same time as the great split in the Western European churches, the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. And so politics at that time and the politics of whole states were wrapped up in their identity as religious or their religious confession. And it, the, nor, the north of Ireland, as it was very much at that time, brought a number of these issues together. First of all, the British state, the English state initially, saw itself as defending itself against Catholic Europe, Protestant England and Catholic Europe. So it was an issue of that state. Catholicism, certainly the, the ch- central church authorities, saw themselves as defending the monopoly of the one-time system, which had more than just a secular meaning for them. This was the church. And finally, national, dynastic, continental, economic powers all coming in together. And so we found ourselves all across Europe with a massive political, religious row, which was at its height in Germany. And the Germans came up in 1555 with a way to try to solve it. And the German rule was cuius regio, eius religio, which basically means keep yourselves to yourselves. Whoever's the king, all the people share their religion. The religion of the people should be defined by the religion of the state. And therefore, territory should be separated between Catholic areas, Protestant areas. So the Protestant prince, now in Germany it broke down, largely because they kept fighting each other and people moved across, also because people wouldn't hold to it. People wouldn't hold to it. But in the north of Ireland, it failed spectacularly. <laughs> spectacularly, the notion of separation. First of all, move to 1607, because that's, first of all, it's the date of America starting. It was the first successful plantation in Virginia. And second of all, it was the date of what's called the Plantation of Ulster, which was the movement of people by, the, by Britain into the north of Ireland. That date is six years, or sorry, three, four years after the creation of Britain. In other words, the Scottish king and the English, as, as the monarchies are united. So first of all, this is the first British project. We are the only two true Brits. <laughs> this is the first British project. It was a Scottish-English joint co-production. Second of all, in 1607, so 400 years ago this year, the Gaelic, the last remnants of the Gaelic resistance to English colonial expansion left. And where did they leave for? They left for Spain and Rome, exactly as you would have known them were going. So, Protestant Britain sees Ireland now not as just an island, but as the way for the enemy to get at us from behind. And Catholics are still all around here. And the man 
who's your greatest enemy, has just left here, and strategically, by far the best thing to do is to settle. Creating a split <laughs> and a loyal group of people. So far, so good? Now, this is great strategy, as you've seen from here. <laughs> great. It creates a few problems when you get up here. Because into this space comes a number of things simultaneously. First of all, it's part of a political program. It's not nonviolent. Second of all, the task is to settle a place with loyal people. And the loyal people are the Protestants. That's how you know whether they're loyal. And you can pretty much assume that the disloyal <laughs> are the Catholics. The context means that a political and a religious category <coughs> are brought together. Does that make sense? The divide between politics and religion hardly exists. Because you can tell people's political outlook by their religion, you can tell people's religion by their politics. Not only that, however, there's two things I want to add. They brought people from Scotland who were Presbyterian, and they brought people who were under the Anglican authority. And so onto this zone of territory <coughs> came people from all three of the largest organized state, if you like, churches. Catholicism wasn't state here, but it was state everywhere else. Authorities. Certainly they, they, they sought secular authority. All of them. All into one spot. The second thing to say is there's a, a saying in Northern Ireland which goes, the Catholics got, sorry, the Protestants got the land and the Catholics got the views. And that basically means that it was easy to attract people as long as you get good farmland, but actually once it started to be just, you know, heather and a few bogs, people weren't interested. And Virginia was an offer. And frankly, are you going to Tyrone? Now, <laughs> here's the story. The, the bottom line there is that not only did people come, but eventually the landlords re-rented land back to people who had been there before. And so people lived side by side. But they lived side by side with a fundamentally opposite experience of what it was to live in this situation. They lived side by side with one group feeling, if you like, we've been robbed of everything and our, our system's uh, destroyed and we're impoverished. And side by side, people who say, we came here because in the end, these people were out to destroy what we were about. They lost the war. They clearly went away to, to, to plot. <laughs> this is legitimate. It's happening across Europe, everywhere else, in the other ways, as well as this way. But not only that, we're actually surrounded by them. So we're actually very insecure. And so people sit side by side, divided by their sense of what's happened here, divided by their sense of politics, divided by their religions which, or their faiths, which teach them, which are actually shaped right across Europe 
as enemies <laughs> and divided also by an experience of what violence means. Okay? And so the origins of what we have here are not so much uh, to do with goodies and baddies as to do with a political and economic settlement which left a legacy, which is not equally divided. And at some sense or other, let me just uh, put this, uh, I don't want to go down on this line for too long, uh, created communities. Uh, Communities which were tied up, I suppose, by uh, three things together. Theology. They had an ideology which told them they must oppose one another because otherwise they were going to hell. Number two, the economics of empire, which left left a great violent experience in one community but left another community with with land but not feeling that they uh, were secure on it. And the politics of the state. So all of these three things come together. But let me just say that being on the edge of an empire is not a secure place to be. The state isn't strong. It eventually isn't always interested in defending. It goes away. And so the institutions which mattered most to people, there's a, a Lutheran hymn called Ein Festeburg ist unser Gott. Our God is a great fortress. Well, in Northern Ireland, our God became the great fortress. The possibility, the, 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 the specific characteristic of the church was to be an institution that's actually present, that actually organizes locally, that actually has some sense of order, which is not dependent all the time on being reinforced from the center. And so the churches, if you like, became places where memories were formed, where experience was shaped, where uh, society was organized, where people knew who they were, and which, although the community was mixed, they were the one agency where you knew you were among your own. And so the churches, in a sense, became the places where people, in a sense, learnt who we are on a weekly basis. (laughs) Who, when somebody was injured, threatened, killed, we we noticed them gone. (laughs) Where we got some sense of understanding and shape as to why this was happening. Where when the state wasn't there, we got some sense of security on a weekly basis. (laughs) Where, because there was a history of violence, we knew we had to stay together. And when we were thinking about setting up our schools, well, we better set them up among our friends. When we were thinking about looking after the community, we know who the community is in this mixed setting. And so profoundly, we inherited in Northern Ireland, in what became Northern Ireland, in the north of Ireland, this relationship, and the word is mediated, lived through the churches. (laughs) Okay? And in one sense or other, this was a trap which any institution, all institutions might have fallen into, but which uh, in some sense or other, religion and politics become deeply mixed. And most importantly, as time goes by, and there's a lot of history, and I'm not going to go into it in detail here now today, a lot of history about this, 
the place you expect the cavalry to come from to relieve you of your problem is different. And so as politics modernizes and people look, who do they look for for support? The Protestants look to Britain to back them up and the Catholics look to the rest of Ireland where the settlement is slightly different and where things are changing to relieve them. And so nationality, as it emerges in the 19th century as a big mass organization, simply has to occupy the space that's already made for us by the inheritance that we have. Does that make sense to you? So, I want to finish this section by just saying, what are the consequences of all of this? Well, I mean, there's so many. It's already too much to speak, but some reflections on it. First of all, the truth is that if the row is at ideological level, if the row is between the faiths, it has consequences for people and the way they organize underneath. That's the truth. That's why wars of religions are, are so profoundly destabilizing. It's why wars of nationality are so profoundly destabilizing. It's because the reasons why you have to hate your neighbor aren't to do with your neighbor. They're to do with something out there. They're to do with a war which is before you. That's the first thing. And so we have to be very, very careful about these things uh, when they emerge. The second thing is that once experience becomes consistent that you can't trust people, it becomes the basis for what I'm going to call social truth. That doesn't mean it is the truth, but it does mean as you take it as an assumption. In other words, if, they are con- if it's eno- consistent enough that they're out to get you, it starts to be true that they're out to get you. And it certainly starts to be a good ground as to why you have to defend yourself against them. And once that occurs, even when we meet in our polite, there are still issues which we do not, we, which is difficult to discuss. If it becomes about me saying, what happened to me was this and what you did to me, then the response is not, oh, we need to do something about that. It is, yes, but you did that to us first. And it's not that what you, I did isn't good. It's just that you haven't taken into account what you did to us first. And history becomes a chain. <laughs> a chain of not so much reason as reasons. A chain of reasons. And so once the shutter comes down, the experience of, of the truth of experience becomes what is, what, what's, what's, what, what's reality. That's what we mean by get real. The third thing, the churches got caught in this, just as other social institutions did. And the lesson for the church is, that happens. Churches are human institutions. Just human institutions. Um, And the core question for, for churches is, what holds them out of this? What holds them out of this? Is there something in the story that is told in the Gospels which holds them out of this or gives some other possibility? Because what is critically important is that we find another possibility. Because if there's not another possibility, that social truth becomes the only truth you know and religious wars tend towards uh, the final solution in which it is good to destroy your opponent. But not just religious wars, actually any ideological war in which we convince ourselves that, the, uh, that, that those outside the pale. And in many ways, the uh, 
critical question in the 20th century is that abandoning religion has in no way released us from this dynamic. In fact, it has, it has cast us to the dynamic without any mechanism of getting out of it. And that's the critical question to put, uh, to put, to put beyond this. The third one is uh, the, the real challenge that is maybe a challenge to, to the whole of Western society by what I said to you. I said to you that uh, um, the, the church in uh, the Northern Ireland was a place where all of the churches which, which, which sought their answer in politics, in getting people to obey the received political religious order, all those churches came together. Presbyterianism in Scotland was a state religion. The answer to conflict was to get everybody to sign up. Anglicanism was a state religion. The answer to conflict was to get everybody to sign up. Catholicism was the religion of Christendom. The answer to conflict is to get everybody to sign up. And all three of them came together, all claiming that everybody should sign up. In many ways, it is the, the, the profound question at the heart of this for believing Christians is what is the appropriate way for churches to relate to power? <laughs> And that is not a question to which I'm going to answer now. But it is a question which needs to be put into the middle of this and is going to be one which we are wrestling through even now because the solution in the Roman em- since the Roman Empire was that there was a- an accommodation between state and power. But what Northern Ireland says is that when that happens and when the state becomes contested, then what eventually happens is churches become accomplices, willing or otherwise, to whatever the state does. And that is a profoundly difficult wrestling. Because it is not true that there's a simple one leap on your out answer to that. But there is certainly uh, a learning in Northern Ireland that, uh, that violence and obeying the law were one people's experience of, uh, of what it was to live in Northern Ireland. <laughs> and other people's experience was violence and disobeying the law <laughs> was what it was about. And once that happens, we have a, a complex and difficult question. But the point, I suppose, is this, is that, uh, that out of that complex interreality, the rituals of, of, of the faith, became the rituals of people's politics. The emblems of the state became tied up with people's emotions about the emblems of who they were in a more total way. The stories we told were told in churches and understood through reference to traditional texts. That education started to be produced by institutions who were antagonistic. That our experience of the armies, of the police, of what was the law, was all tied up with that too. So if I have a reflection on that, it is not to come up with an easy answer. It is to say that one of the things we have learned is that just getting everybody to sign up <laughs> may be an act of violence. And that is profoundly uh, challenging to how we, want, how, we, how we now move forward in a multicultural world because just getting everybody to sign up is going to be a hard business. Finally, and maybe this is the most important thing to talk about, is that uh, the, 
and maybe I'll, I'll, this is a bridge to the politics and I'll, I'll finish it with this. The outcome in political terms was this, was two communities living side by side. And when we say two communities, what we mean was they understood themselves not as part of a whole together, but as competing over it. Competing over it. They didn't see their, any, their common belonging. And one of the outcomes of that in Northern Irish terms is this. By 1920, when Northern Ireland comes into existence, and there's all sorts of reasons about you know that as an act of violence, so I'm not going into that even at this point. The Unionists, who were overwhelmingly Protestants, saw it as our country, part of the UK, even if it did have its own politics. And the Nationalists, overwhelmingly Catholic, saw it as an imposition. Okay? Now... What actually happened was all sorts of violence then was justified. In order to get round this, this injustice, injustice justifies us struggling to be free. These people are killing us because they want us to join with their country, the rest of Ireland, in which we are the persecuted minority. We must have more security. More security meant we go in and get these people who are coming to get us. The Unionists said, and the Catholics said, well, that'll, the Nationalists really, it's not fair to talk to her. This is a very simple picture, but it's an important picture because you need to see a dynamic that's merging here. Or I wish to tell you, you don't need to see it, I need to tell you. <laughs> uh, here, the response was, oh, we must stop shooting them. No, it wasn't. It was, look, they are destroying our community. We must defend ourselves. At which point the unionist response was, oh, our security policies are silly. No, it wasn't. It was, we must have more security. At which point people on this side said, told you, these people are uh, out to destroy our democratic, anything democratic about this country. They robbed the country. We must get out of here. The response on the unionist side is, more security. The response on the national side is, get us out of here. Now, these are diagrams. It's a diagram. These are arrows on a map. But actually, if you understand them as acts of violence with huge traumatic impact, every time one of those goes over, that sets off memories for generations. <laughs> and if the pattern becomes clear enough that it is a circle, or at least it, doesn't, it looks like a circle when you stand here, it just looks like them attacking us and us defending ourselves here, or them attacking us and us defending ourselves here. Now, I only want to, to bring out three aspects of this. Once a circle like this comes up, first of all, nobody's bad because they want to be. <laughs> They're only bad because the other people are bad first. Now, you may see this in the playroom. But it runs something like this, that everybody in Northern Ireland actually agrees on who the cause of violence is, actually. They all, we all do. them. And once it becomes about them, and it's not just about them because we're fantasists, it's them because we can point to it. <laughs> them because of what they've done. And I can give you chapter and verse on what they've done. Uh, then, first of all, the first thing is, I am not the cause. I can do nothing. Therefore, we 
we must rem everything must be done by them. Anybody who's done psychotherapy will know that's the most passive place you can be. If you're waiting on other people to do the changing, forget it. But as a society, in many ways, we're waiting for other people to do the changing. That's number one. We're waiting for other people to do the changing. Number two, we are, if not absolutely, at least relatively, the innocent. We are the innocent. They started it. They started it. We would not do this if they hadn't done this to us. Do you understand? And so we are the victims, at least at some big level. We can understand that individuals get caught up in this and, you know, be sad about that, but that was just the way it goes. In the broader picture, we are the victims. The result of that story is it is not fair that I am asked to make a deal which makes peace with the guilty. <laughs> if we are the abused and they are the abuser, it is wrong to ask the abused to make a peace deal on equal basis with the abuser. It's not hard work. It's just what people feel. And therefore, and here I'm just taking the logic a little bit further, Peace always looks a bit unjust. Does that make sense? Peace, which isn't victory, always looks a bit unjust. And so justice always looks like victory. Now, the the legacy of living in Northern Ireland for churches in the middle of this is to pastor to people who feel ourselves, themselves, to be the innocent. <laughs> and one of the interesting questions is, if we are the innocent and we are always the good and we are always the victim and we are always the, unjust, we are always the just, then... How, and we, how can we act to get ourselves out of the loop of this? Because in a sense, we're, we're existentially stuck, uh, except that we swallow injustice. Peace is injustice. Right, I'm going to stop uh, because I've talked for long enough, but there's a lot more to talk about. But uh, it might just be, if anybody has any questions or issues they want to, are you happy enough, Rosemary? You don't mind? Uh, any questions or issues or points they want to disagree vehemently with me about, which is perfect. I've, I've taught everybody in the university, so I may not be able to answer your question, but I'm used to being shouted at. <coughs> Sorry, go ahead. As you've been telling this story in Ireland, the story that you've been telling us, what impact has that had on people that have been stuck? The, the the impact, I suppose, is well. Obviously, there's a uh, there's a uh, so many aspects to that. So I can only talk a few things. But first of all, um, the, the biggest impact, I suppose, of at the high level is mistrust. Not necessarily of individuals, but ultimately of politics. Is common sense. It's really common sense. Anybody who tells you you should trust them is either mad or doesn't know what they're talking about. 
Do you understand what I'm getting? So mistrust, mistrusting your neighbor at some level is common sense. Okay? And once mistrust becomes common sense, actually, in a community, then something which requires us to live together, it's, it's, you're always building around it. You're always doing if. I'll give you an example. What that translated into politics for the unionists was like this. They said, <clears throat> well, you know something. We, we, uh, we, have, uh, we know they're out to get us. This isn't the stab in the back. They're trying to stab us in the front. There you go. They tell us. Therefore, we have a majority, but the bottom line is we can't let these people, you know, too high in political life. Because if you did, they would destroy the country. That's what they're out to do. And that is not discrimination. That's wise. The impact on this side was not discrimination. That's ridiculous. You're permanently excluded out of this. This is a system. It's not even discrimination in an act. It's discrimination before that. It's just we're out of it. So that's number one. All the second thing is memory. I suppose the second thing comes to mind is memory. Is these are just there's danger in diagrams, but the profound experience is. Uh, and it, it touches on the question I was raising at the beginning, which is, this goes into people here, not here. Afterwards, here is making sense of here. If you like, the head is making sense of that experience. Children are brought into a world in which the stories they, they know are, your grandfather happened to this, or this happened to this. So, communities of memory become extremely important. And if you're talking about churches, as we were talking about, Churches become profoundly vehicles whereby those stories are lived and told together. And the very things which make communities uh, important, i.e. warmth and holding people, then become the things which carry the truth of certain stories. I'll give you an example of that. Um, I worked at one stage with a set of ministers and priests who had... um, did a common project together. And it was interesting to hear their different takes. The Catholic priest told me, he said, you see, the problem is, I, uh, this is in the 90s, yeah, in the 80s and 90s, I live in a a housing estate, a fairly Republican housing estate. The police come into here, and you know, they pick up the young kids. They treat the kids like dirt. They make them stand outside their jeeps. They come in in jeeps, come in large numbers with weapons, but they're clearly not comfortable. They, they pick up all the 16 to 20-year-olds because they're the ones who they're most worried about. They make them stand in the rain for an hour while they annoy them because they've done something in the past to their colleagues. And I bring this up when we meet the police. So that was his story. And the Protestant ministers all think I'm in the IRA. Because the stories I bring every week to the police are all the harassment you did to our young people in our estate. The truth is, actually, on the state, I'm the opposition to the IRA. We're the ones trying to do something with the young people, trying to keep them out of all that. That's his line. But inside the churches is a memory of the police as this organization which does this to our people. That's on one side. The other side... uh, because I saw them individually and they told they were honest with me. <laughs> Mistake. Um, 
And the Church of Ireland minister, who's the Anglican, said to me, that the problem with the Catholics is they won't put their back behind the police. We used to have 13 police families in this area, and they were members of my congregation, and they were very good members of this congregation, and they were among the most decent. Now we have three, because they can't live here. Because they're put out. Uh, and when they move out, nobody will move into their houses because they think they're police houses and they think they'll be attacked. So they can't even sell their house. And we've watched as our congregation drips to its best people. Two were killed and three uh, were injured and the rest have all moved out to the other village up the road here. Now, the tragedy was nobody was lying. The tragedy was everybody was telling the truth. The difficulty was there was no mechanism for us to see ourselves in relationship. There was only a mechanism for us to see ourselves through the light of our own experience. Does this, does this make sense? And so, profoundly, when Protestants, as a community, enters politics, it does so as a community defending against, if you like, this, in which this needs to be justified. It's justified by this. You understand? The attacks on us justified all the things we did. Likewise, here, we were in a system which did this to us and which justified what we did. The third thing, I suppose, uh, so it's memory, it's mistrust, and the third thing that's, that's complicated is uh, ultimately the reason why we have to go on mistrusting into the future is because of what we did to each other in the past. In other words, once you take away all the things, we get equal and all these things, the really hard thing to get over is me working with you when I know what you did to me. So our history starts to block our, our history together as people starts to make any faith that the future is possible together. Absurd. And it only takes somebody to stand up and go, you're not serious. You're not serious about working with that crowd. Does that make sense? Maybe the last thing to say is actually how we manage this. Because Northern Ireland is an interesting place. I've told you a pessimistic story because, it, it, you know, in a way to caricature the, the difficulties that emerge. The story about Northern Ireland is we're still sitting here resolving this and I want to, to, to lift your heart up here and say the fact that I'm sitting here standing with all of this is actually a remarkable story and that's why it's interesting to tell. It's because it doesn't necessarily end with catastrophe. It ends in this par within this ambivalence. We don't know where we're going with it yet. And even for 30, 40 years, we lived with ambivalence. And that's an interesting social phenomenon, is why are we still here? So this isn't all about bad news, and that's why Northern Ireland might be interesting. It's because we know what happens to us, and we also know that actually under certain circumstances, you still have to face this question of how we are going to live together. This question reasserts itself. We got a chance to reassert the question, how do we live together with all of this? And what's certainly true is all that I've told you, all this unravelling is happening. But in practical terms, to answer your question about how we resolved it, most people in Northern Ireland resolved it by a kind of containment. The whole Northern Ireland political situation can be understood as a massive exercise in containment, which was very successful, but with big problems. In practical, personal terms, what basically happened, and in churches this was very often the case, what very often happened was this, was that people uh, 
who met each other and continued to meet in intercommunity settings where they didn't have armies to support them. Got on great as long as we talked about the weather, unemployment, holidays, anything that wasn't really difficult between us. But as soon as anything difficult between us came on the scene, then the danger was we would go the way of mortal flesh in Northern Ireland. So, there was this rule, which is a rule in all societies in many ways, which don't talk about controversial matters, don't talk about politics and religion. And there's a good wisdom to it, by the way, because sometimes it's the wrong place to do it. So I'm not here to destroy it. I'm simply here to say that what it leaves you with is unfinished business. And when it gets to a certain length, when it gets to a certain depth and time, it basically means that people don't like this insecurity. <laughs> they don't like the uncertainty. We don't like the uncertainty around us. And actually one of the dynamics which forces people back into their own communities, if you like, is you don't feel that terrible tension of not, you don't know the geography. <laughs> Does this make sense? When we're talking to them, it feels a bit nervous. And actually, I'm more and more convinced that the main reason why it's difficult for us to engage across these things is when we're out of our comfort zone, that nervousness exists. We're in an emotional space, and we actually, all of us probably, find it easier to go back to the spaces where it is more secure. And we, we, it's, it's actually in the small things that the insecurity real, really kept itself. And so this thing, this politeness and avoidance, both kept things going, undoubtedly kept things going. So I want to put that side to it. And at the same time, leaves you with unfinished business. And if you can't get away from it, actually, the core question is, how do we find our way to meet together and begin to act on this, this, this relationship in a way that doesn't explode, that it doesn't be cause our destruction, but actually begins to defuse the bomb, become a common project together. And that maybe is our, our project for now. Uh, but it's a project which, again, I want to say, I think becomes more and more important for all of us as we go forward here, is uh, how we accommodate all of this, how we, how, we, how we do this emotional work together in a safe space which says our relationships allow for us to have these different experiences and after these different experiences we still have the question of how we move forward together, what we still have to do about those, etc., etc. Okay, maybe I'll go and do that now. Um, for good religion. <laughs> Give me the old time religion. The, the question of, uh, of, of what makes uh, of religion causes more harm than good in the world. Uh, first of all, for me, this is all for me. This all has to be predicated with this. Um, comes out of a profound experience that when that happens, there is destruction. That when religions, when, when absolute authorities go to war, <laughs> people get crushed in the middle. And uh, I suppose the first thing to say is it's almost certainly true. <laughs> it's almost certainly true. 
the question that uh, we have to answer, I suppose, is um, if religion is removed out of the world, first of all, which might be a good thing, what holds us together in such a way that we still recognize each other as human beings or as people with, of value? How do we get our sense of value and, and order in the world? Because the history of the 20th century, in my experience, is that secularism has radically failed to solve the problem of religion, <laughs> which is that all it did was put up new absolutes. And therefore, the question of absolutes is really the question, not the question of what the Enlightenment called religion. The question of once authority is gone, how do you get it back? Okay? Now, the, so I suppose what I'm saying to you is this is, in this crisis, there's two reactions. And they are actually uh, um, and we need to look for a third. The first crisis is just competition. And in our case, what Northern Ireland particularly brings across is not so much conflict, and that happens. It's that the conflict didn't finish. Nobody won. <laughs> the transcendence couldn't prevail. Nobody could actually finally win. But one of the reactions is just to fight on. The second one actually is what's called fundamentalism. The chaos and fundamentalism belong together, I have to say, in my view. Fundamentalism is that, that faced with the challenge of how we now move forward together, the reaction is to go back and reassert what's called the fundamentals, but are actually a kind of very, uh, uh, very poor version of the fundamentals, but they're trying to do so in a place where they're not taken, they, ha they have no shared meaning. So you have to impose them on people. So you have to be extremely violent. And I have to say that that is, as far as I can see, a pretty normal reaction to chaos. And Northern Ireland has it in spades, whether that's expressed religiously or whether it's expressed politically. Okay? People want somebody to put order in place because of the chaos. And, they, and so, for me, fundamentalism and chaos are not opposites. They're absolute twins. <laughs> They're reactions to the same problem of uncertainty, of insecurity, of not having a place. And so the fundamental religious question, or the faith question, I would like to put it in a different way, is what gives security in the world? That is not about violence. And if you want a personal answer, uh, which I'll give you now, I think in the end, uh, the, 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 the Christian answer, as I understand the Christian answer to that question, is only a relationship with something beyond this which keeps you safe in the middle of it. Which is an easy answer. But frankly, uh, depends on the notion of God, which is that God is calling us outside of power into a, into a, a different into a relationship which is which is uh, if you like safe beyond everything. That's what the claim is. And at the same time, I have to say to you, in this world, it is also a matter of identifying on the basis of that security that we must find out whether we recognise each other as human beings because of that. That we are all children of God, if you like the language of of the church. 
then the question is on the basis of how do we make that message real? How do we build a political order, some kind of political order on that basis? And what are, what are the things that have to be supported to make that possible to sustain? And if you ask me then what is the question of, is, of good religion, good religion must be the, the generation of spaces where people know that their, their, their viability as a human being doesn't depend on this ultimately. That's number one. And number two, it gives them the possibility to recognize others and paradoxically to build a space where people may have another religious view but which is built on the, the recognition and acknowledgement of them as a human being. Now, that's a, a, a big ask. Uh, what I know is that we're in, in, embarked on a question of whether we can find that. Whether we can find that. I also know that the people who uh, are in churches are not necessarily the people universally saying a single message about this. I have to say to you that I think that this question splits churches as much and splits religion as much as it splits the rest of the world. So I hope that's not too cheap an answer, but I, and I will try to get to it in more detail, but I think that the learning experience, if there is one of Northern Ireland is, for churches, is what, how, if we've lost this trust, does our faith, and I'm now speaking very personally, enable us both to re- make relations, but also to understand ourselves differently. Because if I'm totally honest with you, the only answer to the question of the innocence is, to actually, is not to say, you're innocent too after all this murder. It's actually to say, you know something? None of us are innocent. <laughs> We're all meeting in a place which allows us to meet other people's evil, not because we like it, in fact, we know that it's absolutely impossible. We know even more that it's absolutely impossible for me. But we uh, recognize that we are not ourselves separate from it. And that therefore this word forgiveness is not a word applied just to other people. It's a word that's applied first to us. And so if you ask me what good religion means in this setting... It is how do you restore, how do we restore relationships? And the answer has to be not that we find ourselves in an alliance of the good, you're good, I'm good, after all this murder and blood in our hands, but that in spite of all of this, <laughs> we, come, we want to come back to a recognition of ourselves as human and begin again. Does that make sense? Okay. There's so much I have to say to you, and I have only about 20 minutes to say it. So I won't even try. I'll just say a few more words. <laughs> I suppose the truth is that uh, we, the, the politics of, of Northern Ireland, and, and these are all reflections on faith communities, so in a way this is all, I hope, not too far from the mark. Um, it's to be living in a very complicated political circumstance. Um, the first of which is 
that we have all seen up up close violence. I was talking to my son um, the other day, and I, I was reminding him as he was going off to the cinema again that these things hadn't existed when I was a child in Belfast. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, there was a bomb every day. And I was gratified for him to look at me and go, what? So it's not true anymore. We have moved a lot, a long, long way. But it was true. Every day, it was a bomb. <laughs> or something. You used to listen at tea time, and uh, people would uh, say, oh, that was very close, or that was not very close. That was how we lived, and it was how I lived as a child. So we, we knew all about it. We knew people who were killed. We knew situations which were going wrong. We knew also about paramilitaries and profoundly, uh, widespreadly, while people didn't like it, there was an ambivalence about it. <laughs> an ambivalence about whether we needed them or whether if, they, if their what didn't go, we needed that lot. And deeply in working class communities, that was the experience, is we don't like them. But you know something, if we don't have them, they'll come and take us. So ambivalence was all over the place. And we also had a deeply ambivalent experience of what law and order was about. Deeply ambivalent, depending on where you, you were. On the one hand, there was insurgency, there was a terrorist campaign that was going on. The answer initially was an act called the Special Powers Act. Now, the Special Powers Act has many... I mean, I'm going to defend unionism very strongly here. The Special Powers Act was vilified across the world. The Special Powers Act was passed by the Unionist Parliament in 1921 and became permanent in Northern Ireland. And what it said was, in an emergency... It's a very short act. It said, in an emergency, the state can do what it needs to to defend itself. (laughs) And that includes interning people without trial. That includes... uh, bringing people in under certain circumstances for questioning and so on. And they had special constables who had arms called the B specials. They were the ones who had survived it uh, to go in and actually act on that. And in many ways, it's used as the evidence of how tyrannical Northern Ireland was, not without reason. And, and, not but, and, it's exactly the same logic of what's called homeland security. Homeland security is, we face an emergency, which is existential, which requires us to take special measures, which requires us to, uh, to, for the, for, to have political interference in the legal process, not because it's a good thing, we don't like it, but we have to because the emergency is so great it justifies it. And who of us is to say it's not right? It's simply to say that in our experience where it took us down to was internment. <laughs> That's where it took us down to. That was the logic of the process, was when you face an insurgency, lock them up. So, what I'm, again, I'm giving you, I'm trying to present to you ambivalence, which is, on the one hand, the logic of why you do it is extremely clear. And those of us who don't see that, I think, are also naive. But the logic of where it leads you <laughs> is also very clear. And what we have is two communities, you remember both, but tell you which, of which, which justified which. Our particular position is to have them all sitting along side by side. There is no consensus. And if Northern Ireland is something to learn, it is what happens when these forces become equal and nobody can actually apply and you're actually forced to look at what it is you are and who, what it is you're doing. 
I suppose uh, the result of all of that is that churches found themselves ministering. And to be a church, what is a church in the middle of it? It's so many combined different things. In the first instance, they were they had this inherited context. They were in this inherited antagonistic context in which it's just assumed we have to watch ourselves. They were of that historically antagonistic context, not just in it. We, our members were all of it. We, we were it. We, we lived it. We, the, the ministers lived it. The churches lived it. Everybody lived it. We, there was no way to be outside it. This thing about having to examine yourself <laughs> becomes the critically important question. And there, there was no way for anybody to be outside it. We were in it. And most specifically, particularly in the 1970s, if you're looking at the church as its formal organization, you're, ask, you're saying to ministers or priests or people with responsibility in communities, whether religious or not religious, in fact, who are horrified, who are frightened, who are injured, who are breaking up. And so the demands, if you like, on churches are to minister to the needs of your community, whether you're a lay, whether you're a priest, whether you're a minister. And in a divided setting, that's a uniform, it's not a uniform experience, but it's an experience where you can take some presumptions and some points of view. And so the very best of people find themselves ministering to the chaplaincy demands of the circumstances which their parish or congregation or situation or town requires. And so uh, in some sense or other, uh, the churches had a number of roles. In the first instance, they were chaplains. They were trying to make, to, to make people feel calm in a difficult situation. It's a pastoral demand. It's, a, it's, it's a essential. But they did so, obviously, within boundaries which they inherited of the who's us. Uh, they, and in fact... Most of the communication within denominations is then internal. It just acts like an institution like any other. The people we know are other people in the same circumstances. That's the way denominations work. The challenge of relevance actually is saying to people, if you don't, the people are saying to the ministers, if you don't speak to this, you're not relevant. <laughs> it actually leaves the clergy feeling very vulnerable to their own congregations who have deep needs who they want met. And so telling people, you know something, you're not, you're not as innocent as you look <laughs> when their houses are being burnt down. It's a hard message. And not one which a person standing at the front can either expect to be heard or expect to be delivered. So the complexity of how to minister in these circumstances is easier said. And who should do the ministry? Who needs to tell those truths and how they're told is maybe an important question is sometimes we look to the people in the middle of the circumstances to be able to escape them. And sometimes what they require is somebody to ask them an honest question from outside. Because it's only then that you get out of the loop of the immediate demands that are there for you. And in the end of the day, the pastoral response, therefore, tends to be some kind of prayer for deliverance. And in that sense, the prayer for deliverance looks like, or very easily becomes, deliverance from our neighbours. Okay? 
But it's certainly, there's a double message. There's an attractiveness also to a community to hear that message as well. I suppose the community, the, the issue of what community safety is depends on how you define the community. Who the community is, who's got to be made safe. And that's the very important question. So let's say the second thing, the church is community. It shapes memory. And these experiences are building up. But it's not just, shape, it's not just the place where it happens. Preaching offers an opportunity to actually shape it and interpret it and make it happen. And I have to say that the rise of Paisleyism, for example, the great religious cleric, was not only a question of uh, a man who everybody ran after. It was that what he said rang bells for people who were frightened. And so, in many ways, the attractiveness of Paisley is security when other people were offering you none. And interestingly, Paisley's vote is the most religious and the most secular in one party. In many ways, he spoke to a people who were extremely frightened. But preaching creates its own shape. Rituals create their own shape. Communion, which is only had in one community and the other people are out of it, starts to look like... I'm not a theologian, but I do know that what we're being shown is where certainty about our own righteousness takes us. What I do know is how hard it is to leap out unless we have some kind of notion of ourselves as somehow complicit, somehow belonging, not just as external to badness, but as belonging to it and being asked to act on it. I suppose if I am to say the lessons, I'd say I pick out two or three here for churches. The first is there's no way back to Constantinian authority. Because the only way back to Constantinian authority is to impose it. And in doing it, it will simply show what the critics of the church's violent power think. And we must become it. So the problem is how do we wrestle now out of that space? Um... Because for me, Jesus' fundamental purpose, as for me personally, is actually to reveal the nature of violence in human relations and reveal that the human systems are all based on it and to call us to something else. And if the church goes down the violent road, it always hides what it's called to reveal. But that is a hard political message because it asks the church, how does it defend itself in the middle of violence? The second one is that for me, peace will only be possible on the basis of some pretty core doctrinal matters. The first is this notion, and I don't want to cheapen it by even an iota of forgiveness, which doesn't mean pretending what happened was okay, but does mean something like, after all of that, we agree to go on together. And that is a profoundly difficult thing to do and complex in human relations and not easy. And I'm absolutely sure that without it, we can't move because there's no way possibly to undo what was done. The, the next one, I suppose, is after forgiveness is something like contrition. 
whether that looks like people wearing sackcloth and ashes is quite another matter, but it certainly means that we understand our own involvement in antagonism, that we are not ourselves coming at this from outer space, that them is not enough as an answer. Them is not enough as an answer. It does revolve us beginning to change the game because this is a system. And it doesn't just require them to change. We have to look at us changing, which is profoundly risky, profoundly difficult to turn into politics, and nevertheless, I think it's important. And I think the conversion in political terms that this causes to is to the conversion from the notion that peace looks, justice looks like winning. Winning may be part... If, if winning is part of it, it's only part of the way. And so, for me, the doctrines of forgiveness, of contrition and conversion, which to me are the centre of the Christian faith, remain essentially vitally relevant. But it's something we have to apply to ourselves as much as to anybody else. Finally, I suppose the Northern Ireland experience teaches us a number of things about politics. First of all, that empire has left us with a legacy of violence, which has partly become visible because Western countries are uncomfortable with the revelation of their own violence. And part of, partly paradoxically, that's the Christian doing. <laughs> it's the Christian doing, which is the, that violence is no longer hideable. I think Ireland also shows, though, that the, the empire is violence, but the, the post-imperial notion that the empire can be got rid of by an ever greater violence is also <laughs> taking us down the same road. Is that the challenge in the modern world, particularly post-Hiroshima and post what we're doing now, is to find ways past the simple imposition of one power order on the other because we simply can't afford it anymore. We can't afford it anymore and if you like the scapegoats come back, we can see the people we're killing. Profound difficulty in Iraq has been, if that had been a simple action, no doubt we would have thought it was okay because it was a lesser violence. Profound difficulty we've got caught in a spiral. And there's no easy way in, there's no easy way out. <laughs> Frankly. But the bottom line of it is, because while we can all regret what happened in one sense the context in which people find themselves is one in which you may, by leaving you may encourage an even greater one so violence itself has become a, the, and how we get through it and how we get away from the notion that uh, it's a simply one sided equation we need to get around to the problem of violence itself has become the problems of human survival and Northern Ireland has a place in a microcosm tells us certainly that. If we don't find our way past that, then we are not facing the real challenge. And maybe the last lesson, this is an incredibly hard lesson to find. To, people resist this lesson, that we are complicit, and that we have something to bring to the table here. To the last. To the last. It is unbelievably true that churches have, like everybody else, mostly provided reasons why it's not the case rather than embraced it and trying to find a way to resolve it. For myself, I suppose, uh, 
that we in Northern Ireland are here not because of the goodness of the people, not because we uh, are better than others, not because we are poorer than others, but because the particular context we are in forced, has forced us now to recognise that victory looks like victory for everyone looks like victory for no one. <laughs> it looks like a paradoxical way where we have to ask a question about how we move forward together differently. And I think that has profound lessons for churches here. Uh, I think it has profound lessons for churches where we are still and a long way to go. But for me, in reflecting on where we are, I think these are important lessons which go past just a narrow little place on the edge of Europe. Thank you very much.